Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening in today to our IIM podcast on early stage investing. My name is Lydia Kincaid, and I am Managing Director of IIM, and I have with me Lee Harris. Um, He's one of the co-founders and also our managing member of the group. So we're going to share with you as as an introductory podcast um, what we look for when we're investing in companies and share with you just a little bit about IIM as well. Um, So IIM, which stands for Innovation in Motion, is an early stage investment platform. We focus on investing in seed to Series A stage companies across three specific verticals, agriculture, animal health, and human health. Um, There are some specific areas that we won't invest in, including in human health, um, and that's pharmaceuticals for one, um, the timeline to invest is far too long and takes far too much capital. So we stay away from pharmaceuticals, Um, but within human health, we do like SaaS companies, we like diagnostic companies. Um, There's a broad range of medical device companies that we like as well. Um, So speaking a little bit more to our investment thesis, we are geographically agnostic. So we invest throughout the United States. We even have a portfolio company in Canada. Um, We do see quite a lot of deal flow right here in the Midwest. We're headquartered right outside Kansas City in Merriam, Kansas. Um, Because of our focus on agriculture and animal health in particular, we do see a lot of companies that are starting and growing in the Midwest region. Um, But we've invested essentially from coast to coast in companies that meet our criteria. Um, Since we launched in these verticals in 2015, we have made 19 investments across 13 different portfolio companies. As of today, all of our portfolio companies are still active and growing rapidly. Um, And so we have invested in follow-on rounds for quite a few of the companies in the portfolio, which is how we got to those 19 investments. Um, But we are really in scale mode right now. We're growing our investor base. We're growing our portfolio base. Um, and we're excited about next steps for IIM. Um, but getting to the topic of the day, what we really look for when making an investment, um, I'd like to turn it over to Lee for a few minutes to talk about some of the most compelling topics that he looks for and the criteria that he is really either impressed by or not so impressed by when we're considering companies to invest in. Thanks, Lydia. I, I would tell you there are a number, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, and in no particular order, we have certainly something that's called the TAM, T-A-M, or Total Addressable Market in uh, industry parlance. Um, and one of the things we're looking for is that a large enough addressable market. There's some really great ideas out there, but they're just so narrow uh, that we wonder how a company will really capitalize on on that addressable market. So is it too broadly defined? That's the other side of a, of a TAM. Uh, we have people that will come and tell us that the market's a trillion dollar uh, total addressable market. And that's a little too broad because uh, there aren't that many uh, markets, certainly in the verticals in which we operate, uh, that could be that large. And then certainly we are interested to see if the company is realistic about how much of the market it can capture. I remember a a pitch uh, a couple of years ago from, I think it was an ag company that thought they they could penetrate 30 to 40% of, of the market, uh, which just was not realistic. So uh, total addressable market is certainly something that's important to us. Uh, also, uh, is, is the company in a business where it can develop what Warren Buffett calls a moat, M-O-A-T. 
And this is like a, the moat around a medieval castle. And the wider the moat, the tougher it is for a competitor to make inroads. Uh, that moat can, constitutes the differentiating factors that make the company unique. Uh, often the space in which a company operates is crowded, and we need to see how the company's products and services are going to stand out from the crowd. It's uh, probably one of the most critical factors that we look at in our evaluation, that, that differentiation and the competitive advantage. Also, the team is really, really important to us. Uh, we like to, uh, to see a team that includes at least a couple of founders. Uh, single founder companies can be successful, but having two or more founders serves to better refine ideas because there's usually a healthy dialogue between those founders. If it's just a single founder, uh, we're, we're banking on one individual's ideas and Maybe there aren't others on the team that are willing to challenge those ideas and, and whether or not they're going in the right direction. Usually, though, when you have two founders or three founders, there's that dialogue that I mentioned that uh, permits uh, perhaps some guardrails to be established. And, and we don't have that company driving off into the cornfield, as we say here in the Midwest. Uh, they kind of stay on the highway. Uh, Obviously, uh, we want to see members of the team with domain expertise. That's important to us as well, that uh, they, they know what they're doing in the space. And it's helpful if team members have experience with previous early stage companies. That's a big plus for us. And we often like to say that we invest in the jockey more than the horse. Uh, the strength of the founders and founding team can be the difference between a successful product uh, execution and a failure. And it really is all about execution. Uh, we've seen great ideas uh, with mediocre founders, uh, and we know that those aren't going to succeed. But frankly, it's uh, when, when, the, when that flips and you have a terrific founder or founding team, um, an idea that may not be as, as wonderful as uh, we would like to see they, they, the team has the desire and the ability to pivot. Pivot's another uh, interesting function in our business. Uh, you start down one, one path and you end up on another because you uh, developed enough information that uh, uh, shows that the path you were on uh, could be improved if you went a little different direction. And that's all about the founders and the founding team and the willingness not to, to just persevere uh, perseverance is important, but if they persevere and just keep doing the same thing over and over and you're not excelling, then uh, you have a lot of companies that crash and burn that way. Um, traction is another thought that comes to mind. Uh, we typically like to see companies that not only have a product, but have achieved some level of progress toward finding a, what we call product market fit. Uh, monthly and annual recurring revenue that's on the upswing is a good indication of, of, of traction. Uh, we're, we're also looking for companies that uh, have a scalable business model. We've seen several companies in the past year that have an interesting thesis, but just simply don't appear to be scalable to the point that it makes sense for us to invest. Uh, the ability to scale is, is very critical to us because it's a key component to getting an outsized exit or, and therefore uh, a major league return on, on our investment. 
By contrast, uh, there have been situations where an early stage company pursues an initial product that fits a fairly narrow market and there's not a lot of runway to scale, but the business plan uh, it takes the technology or foundational elements from that initial product and applies it to other products that do provide the opportunity to scale. And we've seen that happen. The founders will come in, they'll make their pitch. They, they say, we're looking at this very narrow application for our product. But the, the beauty of it is that we can then apply the same technology, the same, uh, as I said before, foundational elements across multiple products. And we like that. Uh, usually when that occurs, we're all in. So those are just, Lydia, a few of the, the thoughts that I have on on the, the types of, uh, of things that we're looking for when we make an investment. Yeah, thanks, Lee. I think those are great. I think um, the scalable business model point that you made is really, really critical for companies. Um, what, what we also see sometimes, too, is companies that don't really need to be raising venture capital dollars because they're not a venture capital business. They're more of a lifestyle business, which is nice to have but a lifestyle business typically can grow and maybe make some good revenue and maybe be able to make distributions over time and, and the founders can create wealth from that, but maybe there's not the opportunity for a big exit like what we would look for. Um, so we call those lifestyle businesses. Um, but we definitely look at the acquisition landscape for companies that we're investing in as well. We wanna see that there's a clear pathway to an exit and, and most likely as we know, that's going to be through an acquisition. Um, it could be through an IPO or some other mechanism. Right now, SPACs are all the rage. So, so we certainly consider that when we're looking at the potential life cycle of an investment. Um, but that's really critical. We're in this, you know, to help our companies succeed and help our investors generate outsized returns. So that's that's really critical to our evaluation process. Um, we also, I would add, look really closely at the strength of the intellectual property for companies that we invest in. Usually by the time we invest, a company who a company that has patentable technology has received a patent. They have a patent approved, maybe a few or more. Sometimes they have been filed and they are closely getting approved. But um, if a company is really banking on being successful, according to their intellectual property, we want to see that there is traction even around that intellectual property. And then that intellectual property is actually protectable as well. And it helps build that moat, Lee, that you were mentioning as well. Um, I was thinking too, Lee, when you mentioned team, you know, a lot of these early stage companies that are just getting started and just experiencing that early traction, they might not have the revenue to be able to pay high dollar team members that they really need. And sometimes even a co-founder team, two people, they obviously are going to need more people than that. So do you have any pointers or maybe if you could share how you think through that team for these really early stage companies? Like, do you want to see them have a candidate in place for that next hired position? Or do you just want to know that they've thought through that process? What would convince you in the very early stages that that team can still be built? Yes, I think that uh, each situation obviously is unique, uh, but one of the things that, that I think is really important to understand is whether or not the founder or founders are uh, capable of taking the, the team and the product and the company to the next level. Uh, 
And we have seen several instances in companies we've uh, done due diligence for that the founder has the great idea. They may have the, the, uh, uh, the expertise, the domain expertise, but they may not be the right CEO. And so I think that's one thing we're looking at very carefully is do, if, if, if it's just a two person team even, uh, are they capable of really getting it to the next level? Uh, oftentimes pride stands in the way, uh, but we've actually seen in our own portfolio founders that said, we need to hire a professional CEO and that has uh, really propelled the company. So there's that level of flexibility and thinking that I think is important as we look at a team. Uh, but I, I guess if I had any advice for an early stage company, uh, don't be so proud that uh, you have to be the CEO forever. Uh, you want to grow. You're still the owner of the company uh, or one of the owners of the company. Uh, but that, that's probably my biggest piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice for any founders and entrepreneurs. Okay, um, let's move on to the next topic. Um, maybe Lee, to, to help set the stage for our future episodes of the podcast, could you share a really memorable pitch sure. that we had at IIM and the company that we've invested in? Absolutely, and, and I was impressed with a presentation made a few years ago by a company called Mobility Designed. And Lydia, I don't remember what year we made that investment, but it's uh, been two or three years ago maybe. I think it was around 2016 or 2017. They were one okay. of our early first investments. And then we made a follow-on investment last year. Sure. As well. So maybe four or five years when, when yeah. we first saw the pitch. Uh, and they designed a new ergonomically friendly crutch for people with uh, mobility issues. And the presentation was especially compelling for a couple of reasons. First, the husband and wife founding team are industrial designers. And uh, so that was certainly a... Uh, interesting. They could answer some of the technical questions, and uh, but what really is, was inspirational to me was they 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 were inspired to create a new solution for uh, his father who was an amputee, and uh, so that kind of brought a bit of a personal touch in. And then second, they brought prototypes to our meeting with them, and those prototypes have have since uh, progressed significantly, but we were able to actually uh, demonstrate ourselves. I mean, I remember getting up and trying to walk around with the crutch and it was pretty pretty nice to be able to, 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 to be able to do that. And that was very, very memorable. And I think clearly this was a problem that was being solved from the heart. We're always looking at a company in terms of, is it a vitamin pill or is it a painkiller? Vitamins, you don't have to take, uh, it's nice to have them, maybe makes you healthier, but man, when you're hurting, you gotta have that painkiller. And so that's kind of the way we evaluate companies. And it, it was pretty clear in this particular instance that there was a, a serious problem uh, with literal pain involved and uh, they, they worked from the heart and, and solved this, this particular uh, problem in a, in a pretty grand fashion. So that's probably one of the most memorable pitches that I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I think that team did a great job pitching, um, not only from a storytelling point of view, but really explaining the business case for their company as well. I think sometimes 
founders focus on one or the other. And if you don't have that right balance, then you don't create as much connection with the people that you're pitching to. So I, I think they hit that out of the park when they, when they pitched to our group, however many years ago it was, four or five years ago. Um, and then once we got into due diligence with that company, um, we started learning more and more about why it would be a good idea to invest in that company. Um, the market might not sound that appealing because the standard old crutch made of wood has been around for a hundred years and it's not that complicated, right? People use it for six weeks, then they're done with it and it costs 25 bucks at most. But actually there are a lot of people in the US and globally living with permanent mobility issues, which is really who their product was designed for. As part of their product landscape, they had included a lower cost, more temporary product for, for users, um, but that wasn't their initial prototype. Um, that was that was something that they do offer now, um, but this is now several years later. So, so again, back to due diligence, we, we learned even more about the market opportunity, about the lack of options for people who were permanently disabled. Um, and then we started adding on other products that they were thinking about um, for the future pipeline. So the lower cost crutches that I mentioned, also a walker system um, for people as well. So all those things added to that addressable market that we really like to see be huge in order for the company to find success. Um, and that company has really you know, impressed me and our investors with their tenacity, with their ability to be resilient. I mean, Lee spoke about some of these characteristics when we're looking at the team. And that's something we, we try to understand and get a feel for in the pitch and in the due diligence process, but they have really proven that in their work. They've overcome some pretty big hurdles they're experiencing great traction right now, generating revenue. They've got several products out on the market. They're talking with some big strategics right now. So um, that has been a really fun one to be a part of. And like I said, we've invested twice. So that's been a fun one to follow. And Lee uh, mentioned as well, sometimes founding teams hire a CEO and that's exactly what they did. Um, the, the founders hired a CEO once they started reaching that critical growth phase that they knew they needed somebody with a little bit more experience but they have stayed on board as the co-founders and still part of the top level executive team in the company. So they've really got to shine in their particular roles as the company grows. Well, and I would also tag along on that uh, as industrial designers, the product that they have today or products they have today are light years uh, ahead of and better than what they started with. And had they, chosen not to stay in the, the role that suits them best, which is the product design, I don't think that they would be making the, the kind of headway that they've been able to make, so. Right, yeah. right. And one thing with IIM that, that is really important to us is that relationship, that ongoing relationship with the founders and the CEO of the companies. Um, and the CEO, Dan Alcazar, is somebody who I talk with regularly. And so I feel like our investor group is really um, in tune with what's going on with the company um, and how we can support them as they grow. Um, but moving on, Lee, last topic of the day, um, what about some reasons that you would not invest in a company? What are maybe some red flags early on? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think one certainly that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big red flag is what I call fudging the facts. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is where early stage company founders may have a tendency to want to puff numbers, uh, number of paying customers or revenues or 
They may, they may want to talk about it. Other investors that, uh, have, in fact, I've, I've seen situations where they they do name drop with uh, uh, maybe a higher profile investor, but that investor really isn't in the company yet. May never come into the company. Uh, but I think that that's a, a, a big deal. I've, if I were going to give a founder a piece of advice uh, to always remember, it's stay on the straight and narrow, uh, tell it like it is, don't fudge, uh, don't puff. It's not necessary. And, and anybody that's doing the kind of due diligence we do is going to find that out uh, anyway. Um, we've had situations where founders wanted to pay themselves from funds raised out of uh, uh, the, the money that we invest and the money other investors are, are uh, contributing. And at the early stage, that is not a good thing. Uh, you, you don't take money out. Um, in fact, we had a company we really wanted to invest in, and that was part of their business plan was to take out a substantial sum of money and repay themselves. And that was all we needed to say, no, we're not going to make the investment. And like Another, you're, you're talking about more than just like a base salary, like being yes. a people. Cause that, yeah, that's, it, yeah, I've, I've seen that very rarely, but yes, it does happen that the founders are wanting to take a big chunk of the investment dollars raised just out of the company. Exactly. It's, it's uh it's the wrong time to be doing that. Maybe if you if you want to do some secondary shares at Series C or D, that's one thing. But at Series A or pre, you know, pre-Series A, seed stage, uh, angel stage, you got to leave the money in. And you also compensation is important. Uh, if if we see a founder that's paying himself or herself much more than seventy-five dollars to $100,000 a year, that's also something we, we, we can't support. Uh, we understand people need to live, but um, there's a lot of bootstrapping that has to go on uh, early on. And uh, so we, if, if somebody comes in wanting $200,000 or $250,000 salary out of the box at, uh, when the company even has no revenue, that's a reason we wouldn't invest. Um, you know, uh, being slow to produce uh, due diligence materials, that's a warning sign to us that maybe the founder isn't organized or, or may have missed some steps along the way and doesn't have uh, what, what we're looking for. Every once in a while, we'll get a founder that asks for a confidentiality agreement, and that's a no-no. Uh, if, if, if you are afraid that we as your partner are going to share information and, and breach our confidentiality with you on a handshake, <clears throat> then we probably shouldn't be uh, become partners. Um, and Lydia, you mentioned the, the lifestyle business before. We're just not interested in lifestyle businesses. If, if a founder uh, isn't inclined to grow and produce outsized returns, uh, and every once in a while, people will say that's not the case, but it's clear that it, that's where their business is headed. That's something else that's a, that's a red flag for us. And, and we're not interested there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Lee, you're exactly right. Um, any sort of puffery um, or fudging is going to come through in due diligence as well. It's not too hard to pick up the phone and call somebody who's listed as an investor. Um, 
and and validate that or the opposite. Uh, that doesn't take very much effort at all, but that is usually part of our due diligence process. Or if there's a customer listed as a paying customer that we call and say, the, the customer says, oh no, I've had a conversation with them, but, but we're not paying them any money. I mean, that, that's happened before in our due diligence process. Um, and that's enough of a red, red flag to end our interests right there. Like we won't even move on with the rest of our process once we find something as blatant as that. Um, you know, we didn't talk much about terms that we look for. Um, we can get into that in a later episode, but that is a reason for us not to invest as well. If the terms are not agreeable to us um, and they're not fair, I would say we want it to be a blend of being founder friendly and investor friendly so that we all win. But if it's too heavily weighted towards the founders or there are not enough protections for the investor or the valuation is sky high with no hope of being more reasonable, then that causes us to walk away after a pitch or even before we hear the pitch a lot of times. Um, and there are a lot of mechanics that go into a term sheet um, that again, we'll, we'll talk about more later, but there are certain red flags in a term sheet as well that cause us to walk away. So all that needs to be heavily vetted before an entrepreneur even goes to investors. Um, but with that, I think that wraps up our, our topics for today, Lee. Um, thanks everyone again for listening and we look forward to having you back again.